Hey everyone, I'm Ryan Kalamea. And I'm Amy Gosha. Welcome to The Divorce at Altitude, a podcast on Colorado family law. Divorce is not easy. It really sucks. Trust me, I know. Besides being an experienced divorce attorney, I'm also a divorce client. Whether you are someone considering divorce or a fellow family law attorney, listen in for weekly tips and insight into topics related to divorce, co-parenting, and separation in Colorado. Welcome back to another episode of Divorce at Altitude. I am Ryan Kalamea. This week, we are continuing our journey on the e-discovery train, and we're joined by an expert, Doug Austin in Texas. He's a thought leader with over 30 years of experience in e-discovery best practices, legal technology, consulting, and a variety of other related issues. He publishes a daily blog, which is a must-read for any litigation or other lawyer professional in the divorce world. It's called e-discovery today. Doug, anything I missed or do you want to introduce yourself that uh, beyond what, what I just covered? Brian, I think you did an excellent job. E-Discovery Today is our uh, my daily blog, e-discoverytoday.com, all one word, no dashes. So hope people will check it out and excited to be here with you today. Yeah, we're excited. So let's talk about some e-discovery. We've already covered with Brett Bernie, who I think you know, about kind of the intro on, on e-discovery. How did you get into this industry? I do know Brett uh, first off, and, and actually he and I are doing a uh, a webinar next week. So, uh, uh, so yeah, I've worked with them quite a bit. So I actually got into e-discovery before there was an e-discovery. My original uh, involvement was with uh, what we used to call litigation support. And you could probably call it p-discovery because it was about paper All, way back in the mid eighties. I worked for one of the, they were actually one of the big eight consulting firms at the time, Pricewaterhouse and uh, worked on a couple of different litigations uh, with them. And then I've spent the better part of 21 and a half years with two companies in the litigation support. And then eventually, as evidence became more and more electronic, it turned into uh, the term e-discovery that has become popular today and uh, worked uh, for basically 21 and a half years for two companies and now have my company, e-discovery today, which is blog, content generation, and consulting. And you generally covered the trends and case law. I get it. And you're just constantly updating the newest case law from across the country with respect to, to e-discovery. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I probably cover 65 to 70 case law decisions a year over a variety of considerations, everything from sanctions requests to proportionality disputes to other sorts of uh, cooperation disputes, a lot of uh, motions to compel and battles over that. So it's uh, really, uh, I think that e-discovery case law is probably one of the most relatable teaching tools for legal professionals because all legal professionals can relate to what courts say about how e-discovery should be handled. And so as a result, I think uh, that's one of the the e-discovery case law posts that I do tend to be among the most popular year after year. Well, let's uh, dig in on some of those issues specifically related to family law. Before this show, you and I talked offline and, you know, there's not a ton of case law across the country on family law, but 
you know, it, it is, it does come up. So one issue I think that listeners would be interested in is frequently spouses going through divorce, there's a lack of trust and it's always, you know, they're hiding money. And what are the ways that parties in other cases that you've looked at that could be relatable to family law where people are concealing digital evidence or trying to change anything related to e-discovery in a divorce or some you know issue that could be related to a divorce? So I'm sure I don't have to tell you, Ryan, that family law is probably among the most um, emotionally charged types of cases out there. And as you mentioned, uh, there are incidences where parties do try to hide evidence and so forth. And certainly one of the things that I think has become really key is that a lot of the evidence is coming through what we all carry around these days, which is our mobile devices. And there's so much information there that's becoming relevant more and more in cases. Uh, certainly text message discussions, whether it's between the two, the two spouses that are you know looking to get divorced or maybe with other parties that may have impacted the potential divorce. That's evidence that's always relevant. But you know, people don't realize just how much other information is tracked on mobile devices. Location information, people don't realize that your device is tracking everywhere you go. And that could become relevant in a case conceivably. Certainly, you know, there's People are doing much more in terms of video files. And you probably remember the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case where she, you know, that video became public of him that factored into their divorce case and so forth. So a lot of information now is available on the mobile devices and those devices, especially in cases like family law, have become much more discoverable consistently. One case that you had covered in eDiscovery today that I thought that really was thought provoking for me was the case out of California, I think it was, in producing Slack messages. And it reminded me, you know, oftentimes in in a divorce, there might be a business owner. And listeners to this podcast know that we have kind of this hypothetical couple, Eric Wolf and Melanie, and they're going through a divorce and Eric owns his own business. And it's pretty typical or, or common now with business owners to be communicating with his team, his bookkeeper over Slack. And, you know, he could say, hey, cook the books or we got to change some deductions. So can you talk a little bit about what courts are doing in those circumstances or that case in particular that I think is certainly applicable, even though I think it was an employment case? What cases, what courts are doing with those kinds of e-discovery? So that particular case, and I could, could look up the specifics or people could come to e-discovery today and find the case because uh, I just covered it, I think, in the past two or three weeks, had to do with the with uh, the relevance and the proportionality of those of Slack messages. And certainly one of the things, if you think about it these days, you know, from a business standpoint, we obviously have email, but if you want to get a hold of somebody in a hurry, you don't do it typically through email anymore. You do because we all get so many emails, they get lost in the shuffle. So you text them or you send them a Slack message or whatever the case may be. Or, as you mentioned, sometimes you want certain communications to be kind of funneled in a different way. So those chat apps are becoming much more discoverable, much more routinely. And in that particular case, because Slack actually provides some utilities and capabilities to make discovery of uh, the messages easier, the court said those really the discovery of chat messages through Slack isn't really any more burdensome than discovery of email. 
And so to me, I thought that was real key to put parties on notice that, you know, if you want to make the proportionality argument with regard to chat messages, it's courts are beginning to see that, okay, this really isn't uh, any more of a burden than other sources of ESI. So then if we go back to the kind of earlier topic of what people do to conceal, what are the things that a person like Eric Wolf, let's say that he has these Slack messages or the books, you know, the QuickBooks files that he has to produce. What are examples of things that one might see Eric, you know, be doing to conceal that information or, you know, changing it? Well, one of the keys really is how that information is produced because, form of production. And I'm sure Brett probably talked about, since he was talking about some e-discovery basics, the term metadata, which is technically data about data. But the key in terms of producing the information as it lies, as opposed to like a printout, is that the data about the data, that metadata, really helps authenticate the evidence. And that's one of the things that I think is key about how information is produced. And I've seen cases where People have produced text message conversations that were doctored in some way. They might have interspersed messages that they never sent that were just kind of in there to be sent in with a conversation to make it seem like there was a back and forth going on. Last year, I covered an article where they were talking about somebody who actually changed the contact name in uh, for somebody else in their phone to their spouse they were looking to get divorced with and had that person send messages. And then they had basically what looked like a conversation that, you know, that between the spouse and them that made it look like this person was saying all these inflammatory things. Then when they got a hold of the phone, they realized, and actually what the spouse did was they produced their phone log that said, I'm not sending any of these messages. So it's that type of stuff that you have to watch out for. That's why a printout of that uh, evidence, you know, is not really the same as producing the actual data itself. And so if you are a party in that regard, you want to really push for producing the data and not printouts of the data or images of the data. That reminds me in terms of the QuickBooks, it's a standard bookkeeping service for self-employed people and businesses. And there was a case I was involved with where we asked for the data file. And as soon as the petition for divorce had been filed that day, you could see a bunch of entries in the books be changed. And you know, if you had asked for the profit and loss or the balance sheet, it would show a relatively clean business or, you know, a very profitable business. And then, you know, but that, you know, was all changed and you could see that in the metadata. So would that be an example of the key in, in asking for the metadata or the original, the native data, as opposed to asking for the the PDFs or the the paper documents? Absolutely, because any good accounting system is going to provide a transaction log or audit log or what have you that's going to illustrate what's been done over a course of time. So yeah, you could present the books a certain way, but when you get to the data that underlies that information, you could see how that got there and be able to see what uh, maybe actions have been taken to try to hide information, if you will. Well, we'll talk about spoliation next and what happens when you're when a party's caught doing that sort of concealment or or changing stuff, do you think it's it? Would you agree that it's generally accepted by judges that you're a, a party's entitled to that native data? Can you walk us through a little bit in terms of the proportionality and the things that you're seeing in terms of trends on production of that underlying data? So there is at least when we're talking federal rules, and I want to say 
I know it's federal rule 34. I don't remember which sub uh, a section of rule 34 it, but it provides the ability for the requesting party to request the information as it's maintained in the normal course of business. I think it's 34B, but I can swear to that. So that means that the onus is on the requesting party to request it that way. And then if the other party, you know, wants to say it's burdensome, then they can make that argument. And then, you know, they can either hopefully uh, sort it out or they can, you know, get in front of the court to do it. One of the best ways, and I know divorce cases, you know, some are bigger than others being a family law case, but one of the best ways to kind of establish how the evidence will be handled when it comes to electronic evidence is what's known as an ESI protocol, where you actually establish the parameters of what's discoverable, you know, what's the time frame, whatever the case may be, what's the form in terms of how it will be produced, and try to get agreement between the parties in advance. And then certainly, if you can't get agreement, you come to uh, the court to try to get that dispute uh, resolved. But that is a great way to just kind of get those issues out on the table up front. And one of the things that listeners from the episode that we had with Brett that would recognize is that I gave an example. There, there was a case I previously had where I'd requested text messages between the other party and their new their boyfriend. And I called the opposing counsel and said, listen, I don't need every single text message. I don't care about the bananas at Whole Foods and whether or not need more groceries. But I do want and we agreed on various search terms over a particular time period. And so what what I had proposed was, and it sounds like this is what you say is kind of recognized, is that there's an agreement on, you know, I said, I want all the text messages to be searched for these key terms, the children's names, the, you know, maintenance, alimony, so that if they're talking, the boyfriend and the spouse are talking about what's going to happen in the future with a wedding or something of that that would relate to the current existing divorce, that that would be relevant and it, the proportionality, it would be like, okay, you don't need to produce every single text message. Yeah, absolutely. And courts, uh, you know, when it comes to proportionality, courts don't like fishing expeditions. They want the, you know, it to be, true, you know, considered really relevant to the case. And obviously relevance is sometimes disputed as well. But certainly the things you talk about there certainly would likely be relevant in most, you know, family law cases like that. One of the things that's key is it's not only going after certain information, but people don't realize that once there's a anticipation of litigation, that you have a duty to start preserving that potential evidence. And uh, anticipation of litigation doesn't mean the case is actually filed. It could mean one spouse saying to another, I'm going to file for divorce. And at that point, you technically could be under the anticipation of litigation. And uh, one of the things that, of course, I see often is people might have kind of an automatic deletion of their text messages or something like that periodically, where if they have a um, an expectation of litigation, they should turn that off because that's discoverable data that if they're um, not careful, they that could be automatically deleted and then they've spoiliated evidence associated with the, the case. 
Well, and that, you know, it's funny you should mention that because that is exactly what happened in that particular case. And the other attorney was not aware and had not apparently advised their client, but a bunch of text messages, which were undoubtedly, they fell within the kind of search terms and time periods, they were deleted. So let's talk about spoliation. You know, a court do in that circumstance, or what are the options for the courts in when text messages are deleted? So the court has a couple of factor tests. Rule 37 is where the issue of spoliation of evidence is dealt with. And um, Rule 37B uh, has a five-factor test that deals with things like the expeditious resolution of litigation, the court's ability to manage its dockets, the prejudice to the parties seeking sanctions for spoliation, which is really important because uh, I've seen a lot of sanctions requests not get past the prejudice. Okay, yeah, this data was deleted, but it wasn't really important. Policy favoring, you know, just a resolution other than maybe case disposition and and lesser sanctions. And uh, 37E looks at, you know, whether the, the electronically stored information should have been preserved, that the ESI loss was caused by the failure to preserve it, reasonably preserve it, and that it can't be recovered through additional discovery. You know, if somebody else has a copy of that data, it's, it's, you can't get the sanctions. And then in terms of serious sanctions, such as maybe if you were to get to a jury trial and adverse inference instruction to the jury or case dismissal, you need to show intent to deprive. And that's a pretty hard standard to get to that level of sanctions. And those cha- rules changes came into effect in 2015, December 2015. Uh, so it used to be that you could get serious sanctions from what would be considered gross negligence. But today, you really have to show intent to deprive. You have to show there were actions that a party took to intentionally delete data. For example, wipe their hard drive or, you know, or, or uh, wipe their uh, device, you know, their mobile device or what have you, where it seems clear that their intent was to deprive the other party of evidence. That's when the serious sanctions can come into play in Rule 37E. So it's not a spoliation, but if parties are changing QuickBooks files, that's going to be treated differently, obviously, than the automatic deletion of of the text messages, you know, especially before divorce. Sure, because they're taking an active way attempt to at least change data, if not destroy data. And obviously, then the question would come is, you know, if the party can't get that data back, in some way, then that is prejudicial to the party seeking that data. And then that could lead to potentially significant sanctions. And in my circumstance, it was saying enlisters would, would recognize this in Colorado. Divorces are handled by judges. I know you're in Texas and, and I think that there is some jury uh, trial element in divorces possibly, but in Colorado, it's only handled by judges. And at least in my circumstance, there was, there was a witness that was precluded from testifying on various topics because during the time period or topics that were deleted and that was, you know, and then there was a negative inference. So it sounds like that was, it was, it's unusual. And, you, and it doesn't sound like there's much case law out there on family law cases as of yet. You don't see a lot of family law cases get to that point. But certainly, I think lessons can be learned in general cases dealing with the same type of evidence because it still is applicable. You just, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily say, well, only look at family law cases where this comes into play. Look at any cases where this type of evidence comes into play because those rulings, I think, still apply across the board. 
Well, the final thing I want to wrap up, and because I know that you are involved in cybersecurity and data privacy, one thing I think about is, you know, in divorces, we're obviously exchanging tax returns and bank statements and private confidential information. What are the kind of tips and best practices that come to mind for you for divorce attorneys or parties handling that sensitive information and exchanging it? Well, so one of the things, obviously, you've got to keep in mind is how you're managing that data and holding that data. Certainly, one of the things this past year has challenged us with is a lot of law firms that have worked in offices have had to disperse to remote locations. So you've been uh, you've seen a lot of folks start to share information over the cloud. And of course, that may or may not be uh, as secure depending on how they're doing it. So one of the things I'm seeing is more uh, law firms are going to cloud-based solutions where they know that security is is in place and they can really manage that information. You know, I want to take take a product we've all used over the years, Microsoft Office, and now it's available as a cloud M365, you know, along with other products associated with it. And that's cloud-based. So you can work with the, your colleagues uh, regardless where they are and still store the information in a secure manner. So that's, I think, one of the things to be noted, to be kind of noting there in terms of uh, of that. The other thing when it comes to selecting uh, platforms to store your data is always look for something that supports two-factor or multi-factor authentication. Because if somebody steals your password, they get into the system. But if someone steals your password, but then you're still going to get a text or an email that says, here's the code to log in, they really can't do much unless they can get into your email as well or have your device. So that's one of the best measures in avoiding data breaches is having is looking for systems that support two-factor authentication. And the final thing I would say is uh, it's important for attorneys everywhere to know that every state has a breach notification law. So if you are breached, it is your duty to let your clients know that you've you've suffered a breach and, you know, and what, if anything, has happened with regard to that. Uh, people may be surprised that it's truly every state that has one, but it is universal and something that all attorneys should be prepared is, you know, do the best you can. Sometimes breaches happen, but you need to be upfront about it. Well, Doug, I appreciate your time and it's been an interesting conversation. For people that want to find out, I know you introduced at the at the beginning uh, where they can find you. Can you repeat that? No, it'll be in the show notes, but what's the best way to, to contact you and, and get in touch? So um, uh, best way, certainly at least to, to find my blog is ediscoverytoday.com. And again, that's all one word, ediscoverytoday, uh, no dashes. Uh, my email address is daustin at discoverytoday.com. So uh, that's the best way to get a hold of me. And of course, I uh, I do consulting on things like ESI protocols. I do a general e-discovery consulting. So if people are interested in that, uh, they can contact me there. Well, thank you. I think after listening to your expertise and your obvious knowledge on this industry, I think it's a lot of divorce attorneys here in Colorado that I work with, they really are struggling to kind of catch up with the monumental change that we've gone through, especially over the last uh, year. So it's good to know that there's people out there with expertise in this in this area. And, and thanks so much for, uh, for helping us out and talking about e-discovery and best practices. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Thank you. 
Hey everyone, this is Ryan again. Thank you for joining us on Divorce at Altitude. If you found our tips, insight, or discussion helpful, please tell a friend about this podcast. For show notes, additional resources, or links mentioned on today's episode, visit divorceataltitude.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen in. Many of our episodes are also posted on YouTube. You can also find Amy and me at Kalamea.law or 970-315-2365. That's K-A-L-A-M-A-Y-A dot law.